You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. Chang in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, Twitter begins layoffs, reportedly cutting the PR team from roughly 90 people to just two and more. And Musk says the company is under stress from a massive drop in revenue as advertisers hit pause. Plus, Expedia's CEO joins us to talk about the travel rebound and plans to take on Airbnb after reporting record revenue. Will it keep up in a recession? And Bloomberg analyzed more than one million tweets and Facebook posts from hundreds of midterm elections candidates who said they believe somewhat or fully that the 2020 election was stolen from former President Trump. Turns out amplification of the so-called big lie on social media drives engagement. We're going to get to all of that in a moment, but first I want to get to Twitter now and the slew of companies pulling their advertising from the platform. Bloomberg's Alex Barinka has been following it all for us. So, Alex, Elon Musk has said there's been a massive drop in revenue. Uh, he blames it on activist, uh, activist groups pressuring advertisers over content moderation issues, even though nothing has changed yet. Who's leaving? Uh, Audi's leaving, uh, GM is leaving, Pfizer is leaving. Really big names are leaving, Emily. And to your point there, Elon was tweeting yesterday, he tweeted a poll saying, uh, what do advertisers stand behind, free speech or political correctness? Those are the only two choices. And Emily, I actually think that's probably a little bit of a false choice for these brands. They are looking at Twitter as a place to put dollars and find some return on that ad spend. That return is going to be kind of number one in their minds. As we've seen um, Twitter, the business kind of, you know, convulsing over the last week with uh, laying off about half of the workforce, with questions around who is leading different departments, and with Elon uh, trying to counter that by assuring advertisers that they will be moderating content on the platform. It seems like a lot of these big names are deciding right now to take a pause. And I would say this is a, a pretty problematic thing for Twitter. You'll remember the last earnings report they had, they they actually saw revenue decline from a year prior in that quarter. And now Elon is taking a company that is 
private and will have about a billion dollar interest bill every year for the debt that they use to take this company private. So advertisers here are the lifeblood. Elon's coming in with um, a little bit of perhaps uh, sauciness at them for leaving the platform, but they will absolutely need those dollars moving forward. All right. So we're talking Volkswagen, Pfizer, General Mills. Let's talk about the layoffs. Employees started getting emails early, early in the morning that they were being terminated. Who's getting let go? Uh, Is it that 3,700 number that we've been reporting? Right now, it seems like it is inching toward that 3,700 number. And you have some teams, uh, like you mentioned at the top, like the communications team that have been completely gutted, losing uh, about 88 of their 90 employees. So you you have folks kind of all the way across the board. And Emily, one of the reasons why advertisers might actually be pausing is sort of related to how this is being handled. It is typical in a acquisition or in a change of leadership for the new leaders to come in to kind of take a survey of the land and to kind of approach these things a little bit differently. The way that Elon has come in with these kind of emails, sometimes overnight for employees and um, what some employees are looking at as kind of a coin flip has injected a lot of um, some would call it chaos into the business. So we're seeing the cuts across the board. There are some areas he's saying and urging um, perhaps for that advertiser audience that he is um, bringing the tools back online for content moderation um, and areas like that that he has put made care to reference in the last 48 hours but it does seem like uh, it's pretty broad based across the company in terms of where that those headcount cuts are coming from meantime twitter's being sued uh in a class action lawsuit by employees who say their termination is wrongful or that at least under california employment law he can't make big changes like this before 60 days have passed can you explain the lawsuit to us and how good of a case they have Sure. In the state of California, where where we both are, Emily, right now, there's something called a war notice where uh, employers have to give a 60 day notice before laying off above a certain threshold of people that Twitter is certainly clearing that threshold. Uh, This is a lawyer who's bringing this class action suit who actually has uh, led a suit against Musk before over a similar matter for layoffs at Tesla. You'll remember um, he Elon Musk told our very own editor in chief that he saw that suit as trivial. Um, So you can imagine imagine what he uh, how he might perceive this suit today. Uh, that lawyer did come back uh, just this afternoon and say that she's happy to see that some of the severance packages are actually paying out employees over the number of days, some employees over the number of days that are legally required. Um, so it seems like there could still be some activity on that case. But certainly with the swiftness of the decision that was made, there are a lot of questions raised around legality, both here in the state of California. And you can probably imagine some of the other countries where Twitter has offices as well. All right, Alex Barinka, I'm sure there'll be lots of news more and more over the weekend. Thank you so much for bringing us the very latest. We'll continue to watch your reporting. Zooming out to the tech space at large now, things not looking much better. The Nasdaq 100 dropping more than 5% this week as the sector reels from economic uncertainty. We're going to get more on the bigger picture here with Bloomberg's Emily Grafeo. Emily, how is tech weighing on overall markets? It's not just Twitter, but Apple, Amazon, where we're also seeing significant changes in strategy when it comes to spending and hiring. 
we are seeing these stocks falling, but in terms of how much they're impacting the overall market, I think that story is really beginning to change as the Federal Reserve raises interest rates. I was actually looking at just how much um, these tech stocks and the movements in these stocks impact the broader S&P 500 for a really long time in the last two years. The narrative has been, you know, these mega cap tech stocks make up such a large portion of the S&P 500. We can't see the market gain without the strength there. But if you look at the month of October, um, four out of the five largest mega cap tech stocks in the S&P 500 posted a negative return. And we saw the S&P 500 gain about 8%. So the equal weighted index was even higher, almost 10% there. So it is starting to seem like investors can play the broader stock market and they don't need that tech strength like they did before. And we're really starting to see that this Federal Reserve tightening is weighing on these big tech companies. What are money managers saying about this? Um, are they getting skittish? It's interesting. I was actually at an investing conference last week, and I have to say, Emily, there weren't a lot of conversations about where can I invest in tech. The questions were more about, you know, where are the value stocks? Um, how can I position my fixed income portfolio? I was talking with Jan Van Eck. He's the CEO of Van Eck Funds. We were talking a little bit about technology stocks. He said he probably wouldn't go overweight, but the value have come down in that sector. So he said that is attractive. But um, when you look at overall money managers, they are thinking about value stocks more than just, oh my gosh, I need Apple overweight in my portfolio. There is some fear that the Federal Reserve tightening is going away on the stocks more than it already has and that earnings do have to come down even more. All right, Emily. Thank you so much for zooming out. Bloomberg's Emily Grafeo, so much to continue to watch. The Fed trying to tamp down affordability, but people continue to pay top dollar for experiences. Expedia posted record quarterly revenue and third quarter bookings, free cash flow for the first nine months of 2022, $3.1 billion, more than double 2019 levels. Expedia CEO and vice chair Peter Kern joins me now. So, uh, Peter, let's talk about the bigger picture here. It looks like people are continuing to spend on travel. I know we had some hurricanes that uh, interrupted some of the flow. But outside of that, how good was the tr summer travel season? The summer travel season was great, Emily. Uh, you know, it was everything I think most of us expected, which was tons of pent up demand uh, anywhere in the world where people could travel. Of course, there's parts of the world still even now in APAC and uh, other places where it's still quite difficult to travel. So there is more to come in terms of opening up world travel. But uh, the summer was great. Uh, business has continued to be quite strong and demand really hasn't ebbed since then. Uh, so, you know, everything so far looks pretty good, notwithstanding all the macroeconomic worries that you talk about all day. So um, so we're feeling pretty right. good about things. But if we head into a recession, I mean, I know people are uh, spending money on travel to this point. Well, who's to say that people aren't going to say, oh, maybe I should take a take. Maybe I shouldn't take that vacation or let's just, you know, drive um, to a vacation rental nearby. Yeah, listen, I think. Uh, 
macroeconomics will be what they will be. I think so far what's been demonstrated is that while there has have been a few cracks in other categories, travel hasn't cracked, I think partly because people have missed it so much during COVID and they've realized how much they want those experiences more generally. Uh, and we've seen corporate travel start to come back and other pieces start to come back. So I think, uh, you know, we have some good running room, but there's nothing to say that people can't start to change their minds. But remember, you know, global travel is a two plus trillion dollar industry. So this isn't a zero sum game. I mean, we're a growth company. We're trying to build our base of members, build our business up, uh, offer great new tools for travelers, great new benefits. So we believe there's ample reason for us to continue to attract travelers. And even if they're trading down a little bit or making slightly different adjustments to their travel, we think they're still going to want to travel. Do you think that there's something fundamentally different in terms of how people approach travel? You know, this isn't just a few vacations they wanted to get out of their system, but it's a whole new frame of mind. Well, I think, you know, anytime you have an existential threat to life on the planet, people probably respond with a little bit of like, I want to live, I want to go see the things I want to see. You know, there are people uh, my age and older who are at a point where they're saying, you know, I only have so many trips left in my life, you know, so there's a lot to get out of there. And I think COVID made us all reassess that. So I wouldn't chalk this up to, you know, hybrid work or other things. I think it's really just uh, people are realizing that experiences are what make life great. And travel is where we get all that. So, you know, you and I have talked about it before. We all want to travel. Everybody wants to travel. And I think certainly we haven't used up that desire yet. Uh, You know, in five years from now, has everyone gotten out of their system? Maybe. But I don't think we burned it off in, you know, eight months or 12 months. Airbnb had a tough quarter, at least if you look at it from a market's perspective, unlike the positive reaction we're seeing from investors to your results. What do you think's happening there? You know, I'm not exactly sure what's happening, but I think part of uh, what we observed in in what we've seen with Airbnb is, you know, they they are a much broader company. They appeal to uh, much more, you know, room rentals, parts of home rentals. We don't do that. Um, And I think the scale of that business is such that that is a market that may be seeing more weakness from the lower end of the market. We as a business are somewhat less exposed to that. And our Verbo brands were whole home. Uh, We tend to be middle and upper market, uh, really the same in our main travel brands. So uh, we haven't seen those same cracks. uh, But I think if you're exposed significantly to the broad global, you know, lower end, you are probably going to be under somewhat more pressure. But, uh, you know, we think they'll do fine. Uh, FX, of course, is a challenge globally as well. Uh, Again, we're heavily weighted towards North America, which is great since the dollar is strong. Uh, But if you're weighted differently, that can have a bunch of different impacts on you. Well, ADRs are still average daily rates, still above pre-pandemic levels, but Airbnb, some of your competitors expecting those to moderate, then there could also be this change in the business mix. Are you expecting any softness going into next year? You know, we haven't seen it yet. Uh, And uh, again, the makeup of our business mixes are are somewhat different. But um, hotels are certainly certainly the big chains are talking about holding ADRs. Uh, You know, hotels so far have been willing to be less uh, full in favor of holding price. Uh, Does that last forever? Do some hotels change what they do? Hard to know. But again, uh, while demand stays strong, which it is now, uh, I don't think there's any, you know, end in sight to prices being up. And they're not just up, 
They're considerably up since pre-pandemic levels, and that probably will hold. Uh, in the home rental business, it's a little more volatile because you have single owners, and there's a little more price pressure sometimes on some of them. But certainly in the hotel industry, the airline industry, I think I think prices will still be high. So last quick question, Verbo, give us the picture of supply and demand given what you've seen you know, going into next year. Yeah, well, demand has remained quite strong for us. And uh, other than the hurricane, which you mentioned at the beginning, uh, you know, we, we've uh, seen strength, you know, throughout COVID and, and since COVID has somewhat subsided, uh, we're very bullish on next year. Uh, we've got, you know, Verbo is going to become part of our, our global loyalty plan, our one key loyalty plan that's rolling out next year. And that's going to be a great opportunity for Verbo members to participate in our other brands and our other members, Expedia and hotels, et cetera, to really participate in Verbo. So we see a lot of opportunity there. And the supply side, uh, we think there's plenty of room to grow. We are being more aggressive in that space. And we expect to add you know, a bunch of supplies. So, uh, so we feel really good about the brand, good about its part in our family of brands, and uh, certainly more opportunity okay. for us as we consolidate those loyalty plans. Peter Kern, CEO of Expedia and Vice Chair. Peter, always good to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. Coming up, cyber attacks continuing to surge in an increasingly digital world. We're going to dive into some new data from Rubric about what companies should do to protect themselves. That's next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Cyber attacks are picking up. This according to new data from the cloud data management and security company, Rubrik. I want to bring in CEO and co-founder Beeple Sinha now for more on their new report. So you found that 98% of companies reported a breach. That is a staggering number. Walk that out for us a bit. That is actually validates our thesis. We were suspecting that almost all of the organizations in the world has already been infiltrated. 
And what people reported was that 98% of the companies had uh, one, at least one cyber breach. And what is also interesting is that 76% of the organizations said that they would pay for uh, ransomware to get rid of this problem. That's how low the confidence is. So how are companies responding to these threats? Are they ready? I don't think everyone is ready. Um, even though there is a partnership, private and public, uh, Biden administration put together a zero trust framework. Companies are looking at it. They're spending money. They are getting prepared. But this problem is huge. Ransomware is the single largest threat to our economy. And everybody is saying that, how do I keep my business going? What do I make sure, uh, do to make sure that we are not only preventing and detecting these attacks, but also create resiliency where in spite of an attack, I can keep going. So there's an ongoing war on Ukraine. You've got instability at Twitter, which is a major platform. You've got midterm elections coming up here in the United States. Are you expecting the threats to ratchet up and how do companies respond? Threats are definitely increasing geopolitical situation. You have uh, nation state actors that are taking sides. You have, again, uh, midterm coming up. We have uh, cyber warfare going on. I think and in this situation, businesses have to really think that attacks will happen. There is no way to prevent it. How do they keep going in spite of an attack? How do they create a resiliency plan? How do they make sure that they recover from it? And that's where companies are investing money. And we are seeing in our own market where recovery, ability to identify what part of the data was impacted and how to get rid of uh, bad content and recover good content fast is what is everyone is focused on. Is public-private engagement uh, between, for example, the Biden administration and the private sector, is that helping or do we need to see more? We definitely need to see more here, but it is a great first step because what happens is that there is a natural hesitation in sharing data and sharing information between companies because nobody wants to come across saying that, hey, we got attacked, we didn't have the right defenses. But when the government comes into the picture and creates a framework of information sharing, what kind of attack has happened, how do you recover from it, what kind of preventive measures you take, that really helps companies get more confident and confidence is what is required. I mean, our study also found that a third of the board have no confidence that their companies can recover uh, from a cyber incident. Okay. Wow. Uh, staggering new data. Um, Rubric CEO and co-founder Beeple Sinha. Beeple, thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. Let's get back to Elon Musk's Twitter takeover and what it means for the future of free speech and content moderation on the platform. My next guest has direct insight into this after meeting with Elon Musk a few days ago to talk about it. Rashad Robinson is the president of the racial justice organization, Color of Change, and he joins me now. Rashad, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. So how did the meeting with Elon go? Did it leave you hopeful or with more concerns? Well, the meeting that we had on Tuesday actually was um, both um, a good opportunity for us to have a conversation. And, and we walked out of the meeting um, really focusing on 
um, hopeful, actually, that his actions actually connected with the words in the meeting, because he made three commitments in that meeting, um, commitments around election integrity, commitments around the replatforming and ensuring there will be a transparent process before anyone has been replatformed that has been um, taken off for the egregious violations that anyone is deplatformed for. And then talking about sort of the content moderation council he'd have moving forward. He talked about agreeing with the sentiments and the concerns that those of us in the civil rights community brought up during that meeting. And we left the meeting um, really wondering what would come next. And at 1.30 in the morning the next day, um, he tweeted out, um, tagging us in that tweet, talking about the meeting and making those commitments more public. But over the last couple of days, we have seen him truly and systematically dismantle the very infrastructure that would make those commitments actually real. So the firing of safety and trust um, capacity inside of Twitter makes it impossible for him to actually deliver on the commitments and promises that he made in the meeting. So, you know, the thing is not just about your words, it's about your actions and actions are key here. And you are taking action by uh, highlighting that move in your tweet. You tweeted, Elon Musk fired the entire team that identified the Twitter algorithm that amplifies right-wing voices over others. Not the first time we've seen staff, particularly black employees, punished for flagging how their company's products enable and amplify racism. Now, Musk today said there's been a massive drop in revenue given this pause from advertisers, even though, according to him, Nothing has changed about content moderation yet. What do you say to the folks who say, let's give Elon Musk some time before well, we make these dramatic moves? Yeah, well, that's what we did. We met with Elon Musk and Elon Musk came out um, and made promises publicly. And then um, right after those promises, almost before the ink was dried on the promises, he began to dismantle the very infrastructure that would keep those promises in place. Look. I want to be clear, Elon Musk actually also met with advertisers. He met with coalitions of folks working in advertising. And in those conversations, um, he made promises to them. He talked to them about how content moderation was incredibly important and how he valued content moderation. And then he went and he let go of 75% of the staff that works on content moderation. So the advertisers that are leaving are leaving because they are concerned that their brands are going to be next to a product that the CEO in charge of it can't be trusted, can't be trusted to deliver on their promises, it act, acts in deeply erratic ways, and will put their brands in harm's way. And so as someone who's done this work for a long time, has worked to hold corporations accountable, to help them meet their um, actions with their words and to hold them accountable to that. Um, I have never seen so many advertisers not have to be convinced, not have to be pushed hard around um, the sort of decisions that they are making right now. And quite frankly, um, Elon Musk um, did have an opportunity when he came in here um, to um, actually move things forward. Twitter was not a perfect company. Twitter was not, Twitter was not doing everything well before Elon Musk took over. But what he has done is actually dismantle the 
type of infrastructure that actually had to be increased in order for the company to sort of live up to any type of commitment to deal with the misinformation, the disinformation, the amplification of hate and um, incitement of violence that has become part of this platform's um, current um, sort of engagement and its legacy. Rashad, the reason that this is so important is because people of color, people in marginalized communities, women face a disproportionate amount of harassment and hate online. Can you explain why this matters, why this matters for people who use Twitter, how he restructures and reframes the site? Well, yeah, I mean, essentially what we're dealing with right now is not just Twitter, but all the technology companies are essentially self-regulated companies and self-regulated companies are unregulated companies. Now, if we think about other industries, right, the um, our seatbelts are not necessarily safe and our cars are not necessarily safe because of the benevolence of the auto industry alone. They are safe because there's infrastructure accountability standards. Um, and so when you think about sort of the ways in which the business models work of social media platforms, what gets amplified, um, what um, is sort of the incentive structure of, of what drives profits, how advertising is placed up against certain types of of content and not other type of content and how that type of content then gets prioritized, you watch a set, a certain section of uh, choices that are made that are far beyond freedom of speech. Freedom of speech is not the same as freedom to be amplified, freedom of reach. And so to the extent that um, when you see that companies are making these type of choices, and then you look at the overwhelming body of research that shows um, just, you know, you can look at a, a university, a recent University of Cambridge study that actually looks at who's getting more reach and who's not getting more reach. If you see, look at even the safety and trust teams inside of Twitter that were pushing for more visibility and transparency around the algorithms, those right. people who have now been um, let go, we know that um, the impact is clear. The consequences for the communities can be life or death in terms of um, how, how people are targeted, how people are exploited, how people are put in harm's way. And when you have an unaccountable billionaire running this company that feels he doesn't have to listen to anyone, the best that we have is the type of activism that holds those that seek to enable this platform, enable this leader accountable. And that's what we have to do. We have to speak truth to power. We have to hold folks accountable. And we also have to invite those who have a stake in this, even if they don't see themselves as activists, who believe in democracy, right. who believe in fairness, to actually speak up and put their hand on the scale as well. Now, last question. The reason, you know, the timing is critical. We're heading into a midterm election in just a few days. You know, talk to us about the importance of that, given, you know, we're about to talk about a story about midterm candidates amplifying misinformation, getting the most engagement. Yeah, well, that's and that's not an accident, right? The what we're seeing in terms of mis and disinformation is not um, a, a car accident, right? It's not just something that happens. It's manufactured. And when the 
tech platforms choose growth and profit over safety, integrity, and security, they create an incentive structure where people believe that they're going to benefit from it and that there will be rewards for it and there will not be consequences for it. And so when I think about even some of the changes that have been announced more recently, right, the $8 per um, per month, which can seem almost fair on its face that um, Elon Musk is charging for verification. Well, if you're not going to verify the identity, which he has not committed to, although he did talk about verification of identity on the call that we had on Tuesday, but all of the information coming out now is that they will not have time to develop a verification um, system before they roll it out. They can have folks claiming to be verified um, and then renaming themselves CNN or Bloomberg, renaming their names um, under um, the auspices of the Georgia Secretary of State, and then making claims about the election under a verified, verified blue check, because verification can be bought now and not actually have some set level of accountability. We watched um, after Elon Musk brought Twitter, the rise in the use of the N-word because his followers believed that they could now say that, they could now move hateful language on the platform because he would support it. We have seen the increase of QAnon language and terms on the platforms it, since he decided he was going to buy it back in April, um, over 50% of the counts from um, mid-October to now have um, that have been amplifying QAnon um, uh, words and QAnon phrases have have come on since. Elon Musk announced that he was going to buy this buy this company. And so we have watched mm. both sort of the people around him, the people who are fans of his, the people who are supporting him act out in ways. And then we watched um, Elon Musk validate that even his own behavior on this platform from amplifying an anti-gay conspiracy theory against Nancy Pelosi's husband to other things that he has tweeted out since he has bought this company makes us all have to question, is he truly serious about leading this company? And, and, and at Color of Change, we have dealt deeply with tech CEOs and CEOs across the board. And I've never seen someone okay. act and respond this way. So every Everyone should be concerned. All right. Uh, to be fair, he did delete that tweet, but you're right, did come out in the first place. Uh, Rashad Robinson, thanks for talking to us about why this matters so much. President of Color of Change, thank you for stopping by. For today's crypto report, we're focusing on the Web3 fundraising landscape with the top blockchain venture capitalist, Bloomberg Shanali Basik, is in New York. Shanali, thank you away. so much, Emily. I'm joined now by Polychain Capital General Partner Niraj Pant. Polychain was created in 2016 by Olaf Carson Wee, the third employee at Coinbase. You know, Niraj, thank you so much for your time because you are seeing that, you know, little rally here and not just Bitcoin. You're seeing it in a lot of altcoins. And I'd love your perspective here in terms of how long that really holds at a time that's been so volatile and whether that even matters. Yeah, thank you, Shanali. Um, I think the, the big thing that we're focused on, you know, seeing sort of how the markets have changed is um, looking for, for progress with, um, with user adoption. I think our interest is seeing the cryptocurrency space expand even more than it has today. And we're excited to look at new 
um, any new traction, any new adoption. And so we hope that that kind of takes place over the next couple of years as we're, we're investing into new companies. I'm kind of curious as to what types of new investments you're willing to make at this phase. Are there things you would avoid kind of given the changes you're seeing in the market at large? Um, our strategy has remained relatively similar um, through both bull and bear markets. Um, we've been around since 2016 and have seen a number of, of different cycles. And what's important to us is uh, investing in, in hopefully generational companies and protocols that um, you know, we think can stand the test of time. Um, we invest a, a sort of across the space, uh, everywhere from consumer to infrastructure. Um, we think especially now there's a lot of exciting opportunities for for, uh, for infrastructure, given the, the sort of slowdown in, in, in the markets, um, we think this is a good time for developers to come in and prepare for the next wave of usage and adoption, uh, such that we can uh, you know, really let a lot of people um, use, uh, use cryptocurrencies. I'm kind of curious here in terms of what you see in terms of, uh, of, of jobs and, and investing in new people in different spaces in this industry. You know, it was just a couple of days ago that we reported that Galaxy Digital would be cutting a significant amount of its workforce. Do you think that the industry still faces a a lot more pain when it comes to the workforce. Um, I, I think we're lucky in that one important, exciting trend about a lot of crypto companies is that they don't require as many employees to run. I think where we see a lot of large Web two companies um, struggle is that they they often overhire and hire a lot more than they need to run the service. I think a, a great part of the Web3 space is that many of these protocols and companies are, are run on Ethereum or run on another large protocol and allows these teams to operate a lot more leanly and, and just with less people overall. Um, so while we still want to be cautious in our approach and, and advising all our portfolio companies not to be too um, brazen about hiring and spending, um, we do think that this is a great sort of structural change in the way that um, Web3 companies are relative to, to sort of Web2 companies. I'm glad you brought up Ethereum in that answer because I'm curious about what you think about Ethereum post-merge and what does it mean in terms of its competition when it comes to Bitcoin? I, we're seeing a lot of exciting development happen on the on the Ethereum blockchain, both from Ethereum itself, seeing the new ETH2 merge happen successfully, seeing developers continuing to build applications, continuing to see a lot of demand for everything from DeFi to NFTs um, and, and even transactions. And we're seeing a lot of interesting opportunities being built around Ethereum. Um, this includes things like um, what are called layer twos, um, rollups that allow you to scale transaction capacity um, even further, um, seeing new privacy applications being built, and, and overall also seeing a lot of traction from traditional companies hoping to, to tap into the Web3 market. And Ethereum and, and its sort of related projects is the way for these companies to, to do that. So we're overall very happy and excited about developer adoption and, and continue to track it very closely on, on Ethereum. Earlier this year, we did see a wave of companies that got into liquidity issues or had to pause withdrawals. Uh, you had exposure to at least one of them, right? CoinFlex. What was there to be learned from all of that this year? I think uh, uh, it, these are good lessons to learn for the for the space overall. I think um, 
they teach these companies you know, risk management. And I think in some ways, the failures we saw in the space were not because of Web3 protocols and the smart contracts didn't work or anything like that, but they were a failure of the, of the, of the meat space agreements, you know, the real world legal contracts um, attesting to you know, AUM or attesting to um, proof of funds or anything like that in, in a number of cases. Um, that was what really failed. Um, and so in some ways, it's highlighting systemic risks that exist not only in the, in the crypto financial space, but in, in the broader financial industry as a whole. So I, I think it overall strengthens um, both DeFi, but also the, the crypto and, and financial space as a whole. That's Polychain Capital's partner, Niraj Pant. Thank, thank you so much for your time. Back to you in San Francisco, thank Emily. Shanali Basik, thank you so much. Coming up, as the midterms are fast approaching, what's the impact of misinformation still running unchecked online, like the falsehood that Donald Trump won the 2020 election? What are social media companies doing about it? We're going to talk about that next. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. All right, I want to continue our conversation now about the midterms and content moderation and not just on Twitter. We're also talking about Facebook and YouTube and other platforms after Bloomberg analyzed hundreds of candidates' social media posts and found rampant misinformation. Bloomberg's Jack Gillum poured through it all and joins us now for more on his research. Jack, what did you find about candidates amplifying misinformation, specifically the big lie how many of them are actually doing this? So, Emily, we took a look at all of the Republican candidates running for not just Congress, but Secretary of State, which oversees the vote count, governors, attorneys general in all the states across the country. And we found 160 candidates have been pushing what you called the big lie. This is this, you know, false theory or this 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 conspiracy theory, theory almost that Donald Trump 
uh, won the election that Joe Biden is an illegitimate president. Uh, and so what we did is we wanted to look at how these candidates running for office, some of whom very well might win on Tuesday night, actually push this message up on platforms, especially uh, now that Twitter has a new owner. Facebook might not be labeling all these ads. And we wanted to get a closer look at what was really happening. So how did the companies respond when you went to them with this? So Twitter did not respond for comment. Um, we're not sure if that's because the communications team, either some folks were laid off and the massive layoffs has been happening in the last day. Um, Facebook essentially said, look, we deal with the, you know, in their view, I guess, the larger issues, preventing people from voting, violence, those sorts of things, and that they run ads really encouraging people to vote or and to say that, look, there's really not election misinformation. This is the real deal. Um, but I think the real question here going forward is why a lot of these ads weren't flagged. And we did, in fact, find one ad by Carrie Lake, the Republican nominee for governor of Arizona, where one of her false election claims was actually flagged by Facebook, but the majority, in fact, almost all the other ones we found were not. So just three days to go before the election. How are you expecting potential you know, amplification of this to ramp up before November 8th? I mean, it's no secret that social media is an important avenue that hundreds of millions of Americans use. It's no secret also by that extent that Russia, you know, really tried to hijack that in 2016 ahead of that election. Um, I think this is going to be an interesting thing to watch is that we have a new ownership at Twitter and what they're going to do in terms of content moderation. We have Facebook that has not labeled a lot of these ads that are clear pieces of misinformation about the 2020 election. I think it's going to be a real interesting picture of how that misinformation might play out in terms of votes, by the way, not just being cast on Tuesday, but in states like Arizona with mail-in balloting and early voting are going on right now. So, you know, what are you expecting to happen next here, especially as, you know, these elections are happening, the ad industry in turmoil, these companies, whether it's because of Elon Musk or, you know, a broader economic slowdown are kind of scrambling for revenue. I think I think that's a good question, Emily. I think what's going to happen here is that you have these companies that are going to have to grapple with a serious issue of misinformation. It's one that has taken hold in the Republican Party uh, that we found in this analysis. Okay. Again, so we'll just see what's going to happen come Tuesday. Jack Gillum, thank you so much for your reporting. And that thank does you. it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. Have a wonderful weekend, everyone. Brendan Carr will join us next week. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.